I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. So welcome. Uh, this is the first time I've taught in three months, so both going to cry. And uh, uh, it's sort of a little bit like culture shock. It was like, whoa, all right, this is what we do. Um, I uh, especially wanted to come here this evening, uh, both because of the place and because of Elizabeth and because also of the topic, which has always meant a lot to me. So um, my book, Faith, Trusting Your Own Deepest Experience, came out is like 16 years ago. And um, in many ways, it felt and still feels like the most important work I've done mm. in terms of writing. And I was just telling Elizabeth, it was my least commercially successful book of all. <laughs> and a couple of times a year, I get those royalty statements and they always have a minus. <laughs> still 16 years later you know I still haven't made back the advance um, and it was very interesting at the time when uh, the book came out because even in writing it my friends would say what are you doing that for and so many people clearly had a, a very difficult and uh, awkward relationship with the, the concept of faith with the word faith and with the reality of the experience. And so 
in some ways that made me even more determined because I realize now, looking back over not only that, but love and loving kindness, uh, I have some sneaky part of myself that likes to help redeem words and take them back if I feel like they've fallen into some weird kind of usage or or misperception. So uh, I had hoped that faith would uh, come to mean to other people what I think it really can mean. And so I was especially delighted all these years later that, you know, Elizabeth wrote a book on faith. So um, I'd like to have us just sit for a couple of minutes and then uh, we'll begin some discussion and then I'll, I'll speak a little bit more. If you like, you can just settle your attention on the feeling of the breath and rest. And with that same kind of spirit of rest, of ease, if you find your attention has gone maybe far, far away, it's okay. You can recognize that, see if you can let go, and just come back. When you feel ready, you can open your eyes. So to begin with, and I'm curious uh, if anybody would like to say something about what comes up in you when you hear the word faith or how have you considered it in your life? Anybody? Yeah. I think that it's um, the space in my sort of mind or life that occupies something uh, beyond the tangible. 
Thank you. I had a friend who I invited tonight, and she refused to come, although she loves you. <laughs> she said, if this has anything to do with faith, I won't be there. That's right. If this yeah. has anything to do with a power beyond me, I won't be there. I said, no, 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 no. Well, she said, tell me what it's about. I said, well, I haven't been there yet. <laughs> I, I said, did you read the book? She said, well, no. She said, but I'm not going to come. I'm sorry. You have to give her my apologies. So there is the definition of faith beyond Buddhism. So I wanted to just bring that up. Mm -hmm. yeah. In the book, I have, I have a story of um, when I was, you know, one of the ways I learn uh, is from people like you, is I'm trying to grapple with a topic. And so I was often teaching workshops on faith and um, as I was writing. And somebody uh, raised their hand at one point and said, came to Buddhism to get away from all this crap. Oh, they didn't yeah. say crap, but that's what you put in the book. I should also say that Elizabeth and I are from two different um, strands of Buddhist teaching in terms of background. And so um, we probably each have our own way of exploring this particular topic. So uh, somebody asked me, um, is it love or is it faith, which was a joke based also on a story that's in the book about um, time I was in New York and I was having a conversation with a psychiatrist friend. And, and uh, looking back, it was kind of this sort of reductionistic conversation. The topic was what's the most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship? As though there were just one, but... Um, nonetheless, that was the topic. So we were talking about it. And at one point he said, <coughs> it's love. If you put any good psychotherapist up against the wall, they wouldn't talk about methodology. They wouldn't talk about anything, but they'd say it's love. It's the love in the room. And I was writing Faith at the time. And um, I had one of those experiences, you know, where you just hear these words come out of your mouth. And what I heard come out of my mouth was, well, for all we know, it's the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship is the fact that someone showed up for their appointment. <laughs> and that's how I was defining faith. Um, you know, there's something that gets us out of bed, willing to take a risk, not knowing what it's going to be like, some sense of possibility, some, something that has us try, in, you know, stepping into the unknown. So... Um, the book, the actual book, came out on my birthday, and I did a reading at uh, Barnes & Noble, which is no longer there, <laughs> um, on Astor Place. And he came, the psychiatrist came to the reading. And so uh, in his honor, it was one of the parts of the book that I read that night, and he came up to me afterwards and he's, and to have a book signed. And he said, you know, I've been thinking about what you said. And I think you're wrong. It's love. <laughs> <laughs> so I took his book and I wrote, it's love, in really big letters and signed it. So then uh, my lovely friend, who was also here tonight, gave me a birthday party that night. And uh, he came to the birthday party. 
And hours into the party, he came up to me and he said, you know, I've been thinking about it. <laughs> and I think you're right. <laughs> I think it is faith. And I said, okay, give me back the book. I'll always sign it. You know? <laughs> so it's, it's a certain meaning of faith. It's not doctrinal. It's not about dogma. It's not about belief. Um, it, it's about an internal process. So it's also not like a commodity where you either have enough or you don't have enough or you don't have the right kind and you're going to be condemned. It's really very different. So but I'll just say the kind of basic schema in the Theravadan tradition, the uh, schools, the early or southern schools of, of Buddhism, um, is that faith is really a process and that the verb is to offer your heart. That's what it means, to faith is to offer your heart, to give over your heart. And, and that implies you know you have a heart and that that is a very precious offering. That's not nothing, you know. Um, and it's described in three phrases. So the first phase of that process of faith is called bright faith, and it's likened to falling in love. Something happens. You have the feeling maybe you're existing in this very dark and closed room, and something happens so that the door swings open. You meet someone, or you're in a certain place, or even through art, through music, through something. It's like that sense of imprisonment is dispelled. You don't know what's on the other side of that door, but you know there's a bigger something, a bigger picture. And it's so amazing a feeling. Um, the story I tell sometimes is uh, going to, many years ago I was at a conference in Cleveland and some friends and I snuck off to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, we went to the... Uh, Bruce Springsteen exhibit and there was a letter on the front of the glass that Bruce Springsteen had written when Bob Dylan got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was about the first time he heard Bob Dylan's music and it was something like, uh, I don't know, he was a teenager, young teenager. He was riding in the car with his mother and she had the radio on and Bob Dylan came on. And he said it was like a giant boot came down and kicked open the door of my mind. And then his mother said, that man can't sing. <laughs> you know, so it's not that everything will bring up the same. But I love that sense, like a giant boot came down and kicked open the door of my mind. So that's the feeling, and it's very intoxicating. And uh, it's also very young in a way, and it's very um, vulnerable because, first of all, we can be pretty fickle. It's like, say it's a teacher who brings up that feeling in us. We might feel that for one teacher one day and different teacher the next day, and it's not grounded in our own sense of what's true and our own experience. And even worse, we get kind of frightened of rocking the boat. You know, we don't want to do anything ask something or display something that we feel might threaten our proximity to that incredible source of that feeling, not realizing it's actually within us. And so the next phase or stage of faith is called verified faith, where we question, we wonder, we doubt, we put things into practice. We find a truth within ourselves, not dependent on an external person or circumstance. And that's really very important. So doubt isn't considered 
like the enemy, you know, when it's the right kind of doubt, when we're really, really questioning. And then that grows to what is sometimes called um, abiding faith or unwavering faith, which isn't the same thing as holding a belief stringently. It's like we know something so deeply through our own experience that in a way we just live it. It's not like a a big deal even, you know? It's just we know it. That's how we are. It's like if somebody... um, I guess my favorite example of this is usually the Dalai Lama, whose love and compassion... Um, is not haphazard. I mean, he's the one who gets up at, what, three every morning and practices for hours. But it also feels very natural. You don't feel like he's meeting somebody and he's thinking, oh, God, you know. (laughs) You are so boring, you know. But I am the Dalai Lama. I better act like I really, you know. It's like it's so deep in him that it just comes out. He's kind of interested in people or he's... Um, you know, he's warm, he's caring, he's, uh, and it doesn't feel like artifice in any way. So that's like a, a state of abiding faith, you know, where, where it's, it's so much a part of you. So Elizabeth. <laughs> well, this is the first time I'm speaking. So good morning. I mean, good morning. <laughs> good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening to everyone, to everybody. It's so nice to to be here. It's my first time here, and um, I feel very honored also to teach with Sharon. I've been also very, very excited to speak about faith. This is not an easy topic. It's something to grapple with, and everybody who talked described what they felt faith was, I've experienced every single one of those things, Um, and it's, I think these juicy, provocative topics are the way to, to we got to go right into it. That's where all the kind of openings happen. Um, so something that feel, where you feel stuck, this is where I feel in my practice, too, the reason I love it so much is it's just so full and difficult and provocative, and it's so much a part of the human condition. Forget religion or spirituality. This is part of the human condition because, in fact, we don't know what's going to happen next. So we really have no choice but to fade. <laughs> and um, so I'm glad this is a, I've been watching, you know, sitting here watching everyone come in and everyone looks very lively and kind of sparkly from where I'm sitting. Um, so that's exciting because this will, it's an inquiry, you know, I think. And um, you know, I was thinking also, I, you know, I live up in the mountains in Crestone, Colorado, up at 9,000 feet. I don't see a lot of people. I, I walk from the Upper East Side to here. I probably won't see that many people in 10 years where I live, <laughs> which is good. I love it, though. I love coming to New York, and I'm so delighted to be here. And I read Sharon's book. Um, oh, I listened to Sharon's book on Audible. So if you don't buy a copy here, of course, then... If you listen to it, you don't get the signature. But <laughs> the, she reads it so beautifully. And I listened to it on a drive, um, a long drive I took a few months ago. And I was really, really touched. And um, I was astounded by how beautiful it was. I think this is a really significant book, actually. And one thing that was interesting to me... Um, because since Sharon wrote her book, you know, I wrote my book 
off somewhere else, you know. Um, and it was a very important inquiry for me for many reasons, which I will explain. Uh, but the thing, there were some striking similarities. But the main one I'll tell you was we both speak of faith as a verb. I just arrived at that be- through my own kind of <coughs> wrestling with the topic. That faith is not something you have or you don't. Faith is something that you do. So I called it faithing in my book. Then I read hers in to faith. I actually think that sounds a lot better. To faith. But this, then we're getting it somewhere because once you have a, a moving spirituality, there's no place for dogma. This makes faith something very, very different. And I'm very excited about this. And I'm excited about doubt, too. <laughs> and I think we can talk about that. Um, anyways, I gave it five stars. Thank you. <laughs> it's really, I, I think, um, if, you know, there's always this challenge of people coming up to you and saying, well, what's a good Dharma book? I'm just starting. I could recommend that Dharma book. Thank you. And I will. I will. Um, I just wanted to start tonight, i just tell you a, a, a little story that my mom is 82, almost 82, and she lives nearby me. Um, and she's at this kind of tender age. And all these youthful stories are bubbling up that I've never heard before. And just a month ago, she told me a story that was really touching to me. She said that she grew up in Boston and her parents had a little grocery store and they were atheists, so she, she didn't really grow up in any kind of particular spiritual tradition. But across the street was this huge nunnery. She said it was a French Catholic nunnery. And she, she was so attracted. I think my mom has a strong spiritual inclination. She's also a Buddhist practitioner, some kind of a second gen, one of those. Anyways, so she would go and she made friends with the nuns. And she just had this like disposition toward, you know, the candles and the kind of open, uh, mis- the, the mystery around faith, not really knowing or being able to describe any language to it. So she hung out there quite a lot after school, she told me. And then she said they took her into this secret chamber and they showed her this tiny little box. And they said that the, Christ, the, the heart of Jesus Christ was in the box. <laughs> Well, (laughs) my mom has a very strong sense of discernment. (laughs) And she said that it bothered her because she didn't know how Jesus Christ's heart, it was too big for the size of the box. (laughs) And so she had these, this kind of both things happening. She had both things happening at once because she had this kind of open, engaging attitude but she was also uh, a question, you know, it didn't, her sense of wanting to question, you know, young people, we, I mean, hopefully we're all like that still, questioning the world around us, not shutting down around what makes us uncomfortable or what doesn't seem to make sense. And I found this story interesting. For one thing, obviously the apple doesn't fall far from the tree <laughs> because I understand her contemplation very well. It's been part of my contemplation, like, where is the place of discernment in faith? And where is the sense of agency in, the, in this realm of faith? You know, this is something that's coming up a lot in our culture, in, in our, our kind of religious institutions, our spiritual institutions, 
Like where, where does discernment fit in when there's devotion to a teacher, for example, or what have you? These are, this is a really challenging question, in fact. And I find it um, fascinating, and we must look at it. So I think this is so great that we're here today uh, doing this. So I'll just say that um, as far back as I can remember, I also felt attracted to the candles in, in a, on a shrine. Or I, 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 I think this is a deep human experience to feel a sense of grace. Uh, what, I don't, you know, grace, I think, means that you're in good relationship to the world around you where you are not shut down, where you're able to be open and, con- and you feel connected to your world. So you, you're able to bear the magic and mystery of, of life without feeling like you have to reify it and say what it is. To me, that might be a definition of, of faith in some way. So as a young child, I was very aware of this experience. And I was aware of the experience of not having it somehow. Um, And I was also very aware of the world of suffering around me. I was kind of very sensitive. And not to say I'm special in any way. I think children have this. And maybe we don't even have words for it. But it's very vivid sometimes, I think, for, for young people. And maybe it's still vivid for us. But anyways, this became like a driving force for my whole life. Why do I sometimes suffer? Why, why do I feel these glimmers of grace? Like, why do sometimes I open up? The Dharma is really great for these kind of questions, um, I think. But anyways, as I kind of grew up uh, into my life, um, then, you know, you develop a lot of concepts. And there are a lot of shoulds and shouldn'ts come. And I found myself grappling a lot. Uh, with spirituality, even in the Buddha, on the Buddhist path, you know, the Buddha was all into inquiry. It's the whole thing is inquiry. And inquiry protects you from do- being dogmatic or fundamentalist. I think the Buddhism, this, this open kind of inquiring mind protects you from belief or doubt. Because when your mind is open, you're not shutting down around an answer, but you're still engaged in discerning. So to me, you know, but even though the Buddha is about that and he said, you know, um, uh, investigate my teachings like you would investigate gold to see if it was pure or not, you know, even though the Buddha said that, I found myself getting very caught. And I also, (laughs) I'll just throw this one out there. I married my teacher when I was, we were 21. I know my teacher is of the... uh, Tibetan Mahayana and Vajrayana tradition. And um, so that's been quite interesting, you know, because then you, uh, you know, I have so much kind of tendency or longing (coughs) in devotion. And yet, you know, marriage is not an easy thing for anyone. (laughs) So there's this, there's this kind of gritty aspect to the path. And, and I, and I was always wondering how to have faith. Like one, one of you asked, you want to have faith, but but sometimes, where is it? And what do you do when someone in your sangha does something you don't understand? Or what do you do if you read something in a text and it sounds like a like belief, like you should have faith, you know? Like, what do you do when doubt arises? So these kind of questions were haunting me always um, in a good way. I mean, this is what makes it all interesting. It's like the idea of faith, but what happens when you release it into life? Then 
it becomes quite gritty and interesting and difficult and beautiful and challenging and everything uh, in that way. Anyways, I um, thought so much about the term faith, and I, I um, realized that in actually, in fact, because we've all expressed different ideas about faith, there is no de- language is not a determinate structure. Like, who's going to be the arbiter of what actually faith actually is? So we have to be able to bear the fact that there's all these different definitions. So what I did is I went to the Oxford English Dictionary, you know, online, and I'm just going to read you some of the things that I've I read, and also some of the ideas that I've heard uh, people express about faith. So I read dogma, religion, fundamentalism, doctrine, indoctrination, um, confidence, trust, conviction, spirit, insight. Um, Sharon uh, defined it as uh, to place the heart upon, which is so beautiful. I read in your book, Sada, yeah? To place the heart upon. That's what she ta- how she talks about it in her book. Um, and uh, also she describes it as knowing ourselves in the deepest sort of way. Um, I have often talked about it as the ability to bear the nature of infinite contingencies. Um, that's often how I talk about it in my book some of the time. Um, and I've also noticed that uh, some people feel that faith is naive. Like I've also had experiences, as Sharon has, like I wanted to, to go out and teach faith, but nobody was, wanted to come. <laughs> and I did this one course uh, on the tricycle, with tricycle a long, long time back, maybe t- uh, 2010, I think it was. And some man got very angry at me and said, this sounds like the language my grandmother used, you know? Like he was insulted by the word faith. So I started calling my inquiry the F word. Then people came. <laughs> the F word. That was that worked. So, so there's that. And then there's like, if you don't have faith, you're going to go to hell. That was one that came in my mind. That, you, we hear that a lot. Um, so, you know, I, I think, what do all these words have in common? Because they are so incredibly different, like opposing. But what I, I found something that I feel they have in common. They are all, these views um, are, try, are, are speaking to the, the desire to find ease in a world that we can't secure. So if you think of the word fundamentalism, it's the inability to embrace complexity. We can't bear that there's so much complexity. So we shut down and we hold on to our ideas. You know, um, so uh, also just, yeah, the, the word faith also evokes this idea that there's something we don't know, but we can relax anyway. Doesn't, if we already knew, we wouldn't need faith. So there's all these ideas, like they're very beautiful, like little gems to kind of open up. And it's, we can't really say who's going to be the arbiter of the verifier of what faith actually means. Language isn't like that. We have to be able to bear that it means all these different things. But it's our human tendency or our human need to grapple with the fact that we don't know. And not just we don't know what's going to happen next, but we all see things in a different way. How should healthcare, you know, how should we take care of healthcare? Look at, there's so much conflict and so much creativity in the world because we all see things differently. So this is part of the faith equation. 
And um, I just want to say just a couple more things. Uh, there's a Vajrayana teacher, Buddhist teacher, Jinli Nobrumshi, he's passed now, but he said, cows have faith in grass. <laughs> I love that. It sounds very simple, but what he's saying is we rely upon the world in which we live. We are dependent upon this world in which we live. So how, how can we actually live in the world without faith? We can't know. So I thought that was um, quite beautiful, that quote, and quite humorous also. So um, again, you know, oh, another one other thing I wanted to mention too, often I find um, that people want to switch the word faith from to spirituality. And spirituality works in certain con- concepts, but it's way too easy. Like spirituality can become whatever you want it to be. It could totally support your ego and become like materialistic. But faith will always challenge you, and it will always humble you, and always keep you connected to the human condition. That's why I like this word. We have to be excited when we have words edgy like this. Um, so uh, this, I, you know, this is just, I, I had some questions, you know, like what is faith as an experience? And what is faith as a cultural you know, the, how we experience faith, like for me, but how we look at it culturally could be quite different, you know? And what is, where is the place of discernment in faith? You know, where, where is the place of agency, our sense of agency? Like, how do we have faith or devotion without giving up our sense of agency? Is that possible, you know? And we don't want to shut down around, you know, just because we're struggling with things and then just say, oh, for example, you know, sometimes I worry we won't need teachers. We'll think we won't need teachers. But if we don't have teachers, we don't have students. And if we don't have students, we don't have inquiry. You know, and if we don't have inquiry, we're just shut down. You know, so I, I, I feel this is an extremely valuable uh, topic. Yeah. Wow, thank you. <laughs> so I'd like to... Um really just have an open discussion about faith. I told Elizabeth that if somebody had a question uh, or comment directed particularly toward one of us, the other one should feel free to jump in (laughs) as well. So it's just going to be really informal. And uh, first I want to address the comment about God, which came up much earlier. And um, in, in the Buddhist tradition, uh, there, there wouldn't be that kind of association. You know, they talk about faith and they don't really, certainly don't talk about a, a creator God in the way that um, we tend to in the West. You know, they talk about gods and bodhisattvas and figures of um, goodness or light or whatever, but not not that sense of an uh, omnipotent being who's got his hand in everything. Um, so it's, it's I, I, one of the ways I defined faith was connection. Uh, because doubt is really not considered an enemy of faith when it's the right kind of doubt, when it's a sincere questioning and wanting to know. And that, of course, brings up the question, what is the opposite then of faith, which somebody asked me, um, like kind of abruptly once, and I, I said despair. Mm. You know, if one is a state of connection, what's the state when connection is thundered, when it's just broken? 
that's despair. But as we reweave a sense of connection, it could be to our own inner strengths. It could be to a sense of community. It could be to a bigger picture of life that we realize we're still a part of, even though we're facing maybe some terrible adversity. It isn't necessarily referring at all to to kind of God. So it's a very different way of holding holding the state. Um, but of course, that's one of the issues that, that has come up a lot is because we in the West have a certain orientation and it's what we're accustomed to. And it's hard to imagine these very same words having a whole other kind of meaning and usage, and, and yet they do. There's a question. I've always struggled with faith in something, which I think is pointing towards belief and just uh, a pretty static experience of faith. And Elizabeth, you brought up just having complexity and holding complexity as a part of the experience of faith. And I wonder um, if you could just talk either of you a little bit more about that actual experience of being in complexity as a living quality of faith and what that what that might look like. Uh, well, it, that's a very interesting thing, having faith in something. Because sometimes when we think we have faith in something, we're, whole, we're, we're projecting what we want something to be and asking it to be static. Hmm. <laughs> and, and so this, I think, is a problem we have, uh, well, a lot with people, maybe teachers and life in general, because life is moving and dynamic because it's interdependent. You know, we can't even pin down what faith means exactly. So um, I always feel that I sometimes say that the greatest respect we can have for anyone or anything is not to decide that we know who they are. So, So to have faith in something is a little tricky. And that's why faithing. How open can we be? How much complexity can we embrace? Like, how much can we bear witness to this nature of infinite contingencies that's always moving and dynamic and changing? So to me, that gets at faithing more. Um, I understand, too, though, on some level, we do have, the cows have faith in grass. Like we have faith that if we plant a seed, a fruit will come. Hopefully. It doesn't always. It depends on the causes and conditions. That's where we start to get into the nature of dependent arising. That's a really important piece of this whole puzzle um, of faith to look realistically at what the nature is and based on really understanding the nature of things, then you start to understand faith in, in, in a different kind of way. D- is that helpful? Or do you want to push I have it? I like 12 more questions, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's good. It means it's juicing up for you. <laughs> so Sharon, you said that... Um, Maybe faith is different because it isn't in relationship to an omnipotent being who has his, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. finger in every pot. Yet, the, the guru concept in Vajrayana Buddhism, is, you've kind of made a good description of the guru, um, an omnipotent being with his finger in every pot, perhaps. Or I would say that that was an okay description. <laughs> right. Well, I'm going to have to have Elizabeth address that because it's also yeah. not my... 
I mean, so this, is, this is a big question, but, yeah. but so there's a lot of feelings around it, but I will... So, but my question yeah. towards around that is, could you speak to the difference between faith and devotion? Because a lot of times in the Vajrayana Buddhism, yeah. we talk about devotion to the guru. Yeah. And then how would you relate that if that's a language that's um, alive for you? In in the space between devotion or faith, or if it's the same or different for you, or how that is. Yeah, you know, in a way, to me, faith just seems so much more like connected to the human condition, whereas devotion is really focused. And I think that the teacher-student relationship is just that—a relationship. It's a dynamic, um, and so and you're utilizing that dynamic in order for something really special to happen. Um, so I, I guess faith for me seems more general, um, but but uh, devotion. You, I mean, but you could you know like faith. We we can't seem to pin down what the word faith means. It could be mean something for uh, someone else in a very different way. But I will say, when we're talking about the guru, you know, they always say that the, see the guru as the dharmakaya. What the dharmakaya means is that it's what you experience when you don't shut down around a conclusion around anything. That's basically the dharmakaya, this ability to bear the infinite complexity of something. That's the ultimate way of, you know, this is getting into more complex because the Vajrayana is, you know, but but still I think it's important to address it. Um, So that's what I would see is is the difference. That last that last um, response you gave was very provocative. I'm feeling like if you're focused on the guru, is it, I always thought it was that the guru represents, say, Buddha in yourself. Yeah. That's what I always felt. Mm-hmm. Because it's a very iffy line between that and feeling like there's an omnipotent God. But I tend to feel like there is some omnipotent um, essence that is in me and in everybody. Absolutely, yeah. In, okay, so let, let me just elaborate a little bit. The ability to, to experience that kind of openness has to do with your own mind. It has to do with how you poise your mind to see the world. It's not just the guru is ontologically this way and it has nothing to do with you. The way you're able to understand the world around you has to do with the way you, your mind is op- like an open question, like it's open and, and connected and um, not shut down around an answer. I, tomorrow, I think this can, will come up a lot more, but absolutely, th- this is not like Sharon was saying, it's not a theistic tradition. This is a tra- tradition of one, one's own awakening of one's own like natural potential. I mean, in a way, it's it's a different question and a more troubling question as well because it's a human being. But mm-hmm. um, it bears some similarity to uh, what the teachings hold as a relationship, a skillful relationship to a Buddha. You know, like um, since the Buddha was described as a human being who had has some very profound questions about life, he also represents something about us. 
-hmm. you know, the potential of a human being, the human heart, to really understand life and not just live mechanically and to break free of a lot of um, conditions and to have infinite love and infinite compassion. So when we look at a Buddhist statue, we're really looking at ourselves in a way as a potential, not as a, likely as a fully realized force, but as a potential. And so um, when we look at a Buddha, we see ourselves. And when we see ourselves on that level, it's not just about us ever, because everybody has that potential as a potential, it's said. And so we really see, in a way, all beings when we see mm -hmm. ourselves on that level and how to navigate that particular relationship, you know, um, to a Buddhist statue. It's also complex and it is culture bound and uh, there are lots of levels to that. Um, you know, we first began the Insight Meditation Society in 1976, we moved in um, on Valentine's Day. And uh, Joseph and I had been practicing in India. Jack had a kind of parallel life in Thailand at the same time, but um, very much, uh, certainly, I think everyone's teachers, um, having later met Jack's teacher, Ajahn Chah, uh, the emphasis, like my first teacher was S.N. Goenka. And the first, I began meditating in the context of an intensive 10-day retreat. And the first night of the first retreat, Goenka said, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. Mm -hmm. So that was like day one, you know, of my entire dharma unfolding. Mm -hmm. And it was very, very strong in me. And certainly Joseph's teacher, Menindra, was all about questioning and wondering mm -hmm. and find out for yourself and put it into practice and all that. Uh, so there's nothing really dogmatic there. And... and um, you know, and certainly Ajahn Chao was a big iconoclast. You know, when he later came to IMS, uh, he would say, like, people were doing slow walking, uh, as was sort of the Burmese style, and he would go up and say, I'm sorry you're feeling so ill, <laughs> you know, in Thai, but nobody knew what he was saying. Um, but anyway, so, you know, we opened the doors of, of IMS, and the question was, should we have Buddhas around? Mm. Because on the one hand, we had an extremely, each one of us had a strong, strong conditioning. The Buddha did not teach Buddhism. It's about a way of life. It's open to everybody. It's not about becoming a Buddhist. So that was very strong. And on the other hand, there's a certain quality of respect, which is also mm -hmm. not so common in the West. You know, like I, I had a great moment one year um, <coughs> teaching a loving kindness weekend in Connecticut. And somebody came up to me and said, this is such great stuff. When did you make it up? <laughs> and I said, well, I didn't make anything up, you know? <laughs> and, you know, so that spoke to, well, maybe we should have Buddhist statues and we should have that sense of lineage and acknowledgement, mm -hmm. you know, of, of where this body of knowledge came from and has been preserved. And mm -hmm. so we went back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth, and we just couldn't decide what to do. Here's complexity, right? You know, because there's not like one clear right way of doing it. You have to hold all sides. And in the end, um, it turned out that when Jack was in Thailand after he disrobed, after he stopped being a monk, he did quite a lot of shopping. And uh, <laughs> one day this U-Haul pulled up in front of IMS, which was full of Buddha statues. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we put all these Buddhist statues in there. Nice. But, you know, then there's the question of, you know, um, in, in Burma, for example, you know, uh, you don't wear shoes around a Buddhist statue. You bow to a Buddhist statue, not as a distant, abstract figure, but that part of yourself mm-hmm. that you're honoring, you know, and you certainly don't make the Buddha into an ashtray or something, you know, like... <laughs> And so, you know, how far do you go in the West with this sense of the Buddha and I are one, you know? It's like, um, is an ashtray okay? Well, I personally don't think so, you know, but some people do, clearly. Um, You know, so there can be perhaps respect and and, uh, skillful use of that kind of acknowledgement, but the bottom line is always it's about you Mm -hmm. and about your own potential. I'm going to add something. Yeah. I, I'm really happy you got those statues. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Not everybody because, is. <laughs> yeah. The, the reason, you know, humility and openness and the ability to recognize qualities in, in the world around us or in our teachers is, is a beautiful aspect of our own mind. Like we often think, you know, oh, the Buddha bestows the blessing or the teacher bestows the blessing. But really it's our ability to recognize something and value it and cherish it as an important experience that actually makes it a blessing. If we don't recognize it, we don't feel the blessing of that. So it's not like a one-sided thing. It's a relationship. And, and, and I think for us, it's not ultimately, you know, we want to have respect for everything and everyone, but, you know, we start in these places. And like Sharon says, I do think it's quite complex and tricky. And that's our challenge to rise to like it's our challenge to rise to faith in faith makes us a little uncomfortable perfect we should do it we should look at it we you know look at the human condition and i i think i i love this aspect of the dharma too that we have teachers and we have you know and sometimes it can get quite challenging but it's important i think to not just say oh now let's do away with that you know these are always opportunities to learn and grow and figure out how to relate to it in a way that works, you know? And this is why we need discernment and we need agency, but we also need this kind of openness and listening, you know, and all of that. Thank you both for being here and sharing your faithing with us. Um, and welcome back to the seat. Thank you. Um, uh, my question is about the relationship to faith or faithing or to faith and taking refuge. Um, when I first heard about taking refuge, when I first started practicing, um, it, it, it struck me as belief. It struck me as a, a belief. And over time, I started to understand and, and consider it as a training. Um, and after I read your book, um, I, I to place the heart upon in faith was that resonated. Mm-hmm. And so when I sit, I um, set an intention and I, um, I, before I sit or after I say, you know, I place my heart in faith on the potential to awaken in this moment. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I place my heart and faith upon the Dharma as a teaching, as a path to awaken, and then the people uh, with whom I'll awaken. And so I use that phrase to place my heart and faith. So I'm just curious 
to know how you consider taking refuge in faith. Because when I do that, sometimes when I do it, I feel a little uncertainty around it. Sometimes I'm like, oh, what's that? And now from tonight's, um, from what you've shared tonight, it's, I'm, I'm really glad to have been here and heard this because it's like, oh, that's good, actually. It's like, that's the complexity of the, um, on that uncertainty and it was an inquiry. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yes. It's funny because I, I want to hear you talk about place your heart upon. Yeah. You okay. Uh, place your heart upon is actually a yeah. literal translation of the word sada, S-A-D-D-H-A, which is usually translated as faith. Um, so uh, that comes right out of the tradition and that sense of offering your heart. Um, and certainly taking refuge is, is a great example of that. It, for me, it's a lot about like that reminder that I didn't make this up, you know, one weekend in Connecticut. Oh, loving kindness would be a good idea, you know. Um, <laughs> so it's like aligning myself with the uh, generations of, you know, men and women who throughout, you know, such a long, long period of time and many traditions have sought a deeper truth and um, taken a lot of risks sometimes to to access that deeper truth and you know, had that kind of courage and stepped away from the norms of society, what was expected of them. And, and that's a part of my path, you know, is that they were, they were willing to do that. And, um, and certainly within a tradition, uh, there are people who, like I said, in the monastics particularly, who felt it was their responsibility to preserve these teachings so that you know, generation after generation after generation. I mean, I'm not saying there are no distortions, because I actually don't know, but there's something pretty good, you know, that's lasted, uh, because the methodologies still work, and they're amazing, and, and you know, there's, uh, there's something very authentic and, and inclusive about what we have, and, and it wouldn't be hard to imagine that it could have gotten way distorted, if not destroyed long ago. And so taking refuge in a sangha is uh, supposed to be um, starting with that kind of respect and acknowledgement that uh, people have, have done this. They've really preserved it. And then the more contemporary meaning um, is the community of, of practitioners, you know, that we we travel a path together with, like it was so uh, fun in the beginning to hear, who's here from the New Jersey Sangha, you know? <laughs> who's here from the Brooklyn Sangha? Well, nobody, okay. Um, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, it's like, at least New Jersey, so it came through. Um, you know, that, that this is a viable reality. This is an important, important part of people's path is having a community and, and knowing that we all belong. In, in this community. And so that's what taking refuge is. It's an acknowledgement of those who practiced before us and those we practice with. That um, it's not something, um, you know, superficial or uh, made up because it sounds like a good workshop title, or, you know, something like that. There's a lot of depth and uh, really ancient depth and knowledge that goes into it. And 
I've always felt uh, really reassured and blessed to align myself with it. Mm-hmm. To think, well, I'm really kind of glad my teachers didn't make it up either, you know? <laughs> I might just add one. Yeah. Not that that's not complete. <laughs> but I was thinking, um, you know, in a way when you're taking refuge, you're changing your strategy. Like, what are you taking refuge from? You're actually taking refuge from something that's not working for you, you know? So, like, a lot of the expectations and the wanting that we have from this world, that it, it, just because of the nature of it, it's not going to give it to us. So, you know, we're starting to look at cause and effect and how to connect the dots. You know, like, um, with the, like taking refuge in the Dharma, it's like we're starting to see, wait a minute, you know, when I focus solely on myself, something is not working. You know, when I focus on the well-being of others, something seems to shift in the whole, my whole way of being. So I feel, you know, this refuge thing is really very practical. It's like you want your actions to meet your intentions. So what do you need to do? in order for that to happen. So it's a strategy change in a way. Um, And so then you have to explore, well, what does that mean exactly? You know? And what does it mean to have kind of a sane guide? Because in fact, you know, and I think of the sangha, sometimes I think, you know, sometimes in sanghas there's a little rubbing going on, there's a little bit of irritation or whatever, which is bound to happen. My, the Tibetans always say it's like a, you have a table and there's a lot of cups and glasses and it's bound to rattle, you know, a little bit. But, um, you know, I, I do feel sometimes with my sangha, like I'm out in the world or at the post office and I see one of them and I feel so great joy because we have kind of the same intention and we're kind of supporting. Of course, everyone is really part of your sangha as you practice. Everybody you include in the realm of your care in the Dharma. But there is something kind of special about the sangha that way, you know. And then there's a Dharma that tells you how to do it and there's the Buddha who's you know, somebody like with our teachers, I think we, we look at them and the qualities just wake us up because we recognize them. Anyway, I, I, I feel we're also taking refuge from something that's not working. That helps me a lot to understand the refuge. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to have to stop. Would you like to lead a longer sitting? Okay, so, so, so we'll do, I'm watching, focusing mm-hmm. on the breath, right? Whatever okay. you like. God, there's so many meditations. How do you choose? (laughs) So, um, we'll do five minutes. Yeah, more, whatever you want. Then we'll just do questions. We have a lot of time. Okay, wonderful. So let's let's do uh, what we call. So I'm a Sharon mentioned we we come from in a way different traditions although she seems to come from many traditions. <laughs> I, if you, when you read the book you find out. <laughs> but um, I'm my my main practices have a very strong in the Mahayana Buddhist like the Bodhisattva path tradition and also Vajrayana uh, tradition. So we call this shamatha meditation or calm abiding meditation. Um, and it's, it has to do with focusing um, one's awareness. So we'll focus the awareness on the breath. So first, it just to kind of adjust or look at our the body, the breath, and the mind. So, of course, sitting in the meditation posture, just, um, you know, let go of any kind of religious posture <laughs> you might be holding or I am practicing kind of posture and just be natural, which is what one is which is the instruction 
um, and keep you can keep your eyes open or closed, um, but keep the vision quite soft. And then as for the breath, we're just going to focus on the breath, breathing in and feeling the sensations coming into the through the mouth or, or the nose, whatever's comfortable, and filling up the lungs, and then a little bit of a longer exhale. And I'll just talk you through that part. Um, and then with the mind, there's it's very simple. Um, all you have to do is keep returning to the breath. And my teacher always says that if the mind gets lost and you recognize it, you should be joyful because the mind could be lost forever, but it's not. So you catch it and you bring it right back. So it should always be a joyful experience to bring your mind back to your, your awareness, back to your breath. So let's just begin then with the breathing in. Filling up the lungs with the air. And then there'll be just a small pause, like a space. And then a long exhale, emptying the lungs, and then another gap, another space. Again, if the mind wanders, just bring it right back to the breath.
Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.